You need a higher purpose. This is a purpose-driven economy. And one way to get a higher purpose is just to make insanely great products or we're the best service company. And that's not good enough. The tact that really is necessary is to be involved in addressing these huge, visible, and scary problems that are facing our society. From the TED Audio Collective, this is Design Matters with Debbie Millman. For 18 years, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative people about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about and working on. On this episode, David Auker gives his influential take on branding and marketing. If you want to really grow, you need to have something that's different, something that's so positive that people will fail to consider other products. In the fields of branding and marketing, David Acker is a big deal. Considered the father of modern branding, he helped define what brand equity even is and created an influential model for branding that is used by many organizations today. David Acker is the vice chairman at Profit, the global marketing and branding consultancy. He's also professor emeritus at UC Berkeley's Haas School of Business and He's received a boatload of awards for his contributions to the science of marketing. He's the author of some of the most influential books in business, and his latest, The Future of Purpose-Driven Branding, Signature Programs That Impact and Inspire Both Business and Society, is out now. It's a real honor to have David on the show. He's here to talk about all of that and his legendary career. David Acker, welcome to Design Matters. Well, thanks for having me. David, is it true that you've played over 30,000 games of backgammon? Oh, yeah. I'm not proud of that necessarily, but my a friend of mine and I just got uh, into it, and um, we played a lot of games. Now, you were born in Fargo, North Dakota in 1938, and I didn't realize until I read your memoir that the movie Fargo wasn't actually filmed in Fargo. Where in North Dakota was it filmed? It was filmed in Minnesota, Brainerd, northern Brainerd, which is the heart of the lake country of Minnesota. David, it seems like you've always had an admirable work ethic. I believe that one of your first jobs was in high school where you were hired to wash the school windows. And I believe that your salary started at 75 cents per hour and you received a nickel an hour increase each month. What did you do with your money? I went to college. I was able to go to uh, college because... Uh, I got a scholarship and I used that summer money and my folks gave me about a third of my college costs. You applied to both Harvard University and MIT. Um, you did. were accepted at both, but your parents yes. wanted you to stay local and turn down both of those offers. Is that correct? Parents in those days weren't, at least in Fargo, weren't so involved in college choice as they are today. And I didn't have any advisors as kids do today. So I some a friend of mine was going to Harvard, so I applied there, and then I decided well, I might like to be an engineer, so I applied to M, uh, MIT. So you chose MIT over Harvard ultimately. Yeah, they gave me a scholarship, and Emma and Harvard did not. 
And at the time I read that you wanted to follow in your father's footsteps and work in engineering management, this in spite of a vocational preference profile you took in 1955 that indicated extremely high orientation toward the persuasive and the literary and low interest in scientific and mechanical. Yeah, I briefly was an engineer at MIT and I observed that all my classmates were building radios in the, growing up when I was playing baseball. And so I decided it wasn't a good option. So I went to the school of management at MIT, Sloan School. In your last semester at MIT, I understand you took a philosophy course on symbolic logic taught by Noam Chomsky. What was that like? I, what was Noam Chomsky like as a teacher? He was pretty good. I, he didn't talk philosophy or politics then. He was just symbolic logic. And uh, I thought it was a, a interesting course. And uh, I can tell you for sure he has no memory of me. Now, I understand that you loved the course. You didn't find it particularly difficult, but he gave you a D. Yeah, that was my, my worst grade in all of college. And it was... Um, a little humbling, but by that time I was a second-term senior. It didn't matter that much. But why did he give you a D? I think I didn't perform well. I mean, given everything that I know about you, and it seems hard for me to believe that that would even be possible for you to get a D, let alone with Noam Chomsky. Well, at the time I was playing tennis, and the tennis team had a lot of matches in, in a month and a half, and so I probably wasn't studying as much as I did earlier. Now, you've written about um, how your first job after college was at Texas Instruments, where you said you were a rather pathetic go-getter. What does that mean? Well, it was, it was a terrible career choice, I realize now, because uh, at TI, I was in, in the wrong place in the company, and it was I was in Houston, and the action was in Dallas. I was in instruments, the action was in semiconductors. And uh, and I was in marketing, and the action was engineering and manufacturing. What made you a rather pathetic go-getter, though? Well, I just trying to thrive in that environment was really was really hopeless. You've written about how you had a compulsive drive for efficiency, which was an annoying or colorful trait, depending on your perspective. And I'm wondering where you stand on the efficiency spectrum today. Yeah, I took a course at the Sloan School called Work Simplification, which was basically a time and motion study. And I really like that. And and to this day, I it's hard for me to avoid giving people suggestions on how to be more efficient. While in Texas, you enrolled in the University of Houston's graduate program. You took two courses towards a master's before realizing that a master's degree in electrical engineering was not for you. You then attended Northwestern University for an MBA, but ultimately decided you really wanted to get a PhD and become an academic. Is it true that you called the director of Stanford's PhD program at the time, Harvey Wagner, with a request to get into the school? Debbie, you actually did read that book. Uh, <laughs> the, um, uh, yes, I did. I called him and, uh, you know, it never could happen today, but uh, back then he... I didn't have an application to the PhD program, but I had applied to the MBA program. So he dragged that one out and he called me and said I could come. You graduated from Stanford with a PhD in 1969. You began teaching at UC Berkeley for a salary of $11,500. 
Um, my first salary was in 1983 for a whopping $16,000. Um, what type of research were you doing at the time? Well, I came out of Stanford as a quantitative model builder. I was uh, I have a master's in statistics from Stanford. And, and so I built statistical models, mostly econometric models, and some probability models as well. So my early research and uh, my thesis, I, I got a lot of articles out of my thesis because it, it just worked well. Articles that almost nobody then are now read, but they were published in, in impressive journals. And so that got me off to a fast start. Well, in 1981, you were named the J. Gary Shansby Professor of Marketing Strategy. You you were writing books. You've since written 18 books on business and branding. Your articles in the Journal of Marketing in the early 90s included consumer evaluations of brand extensions and managing brand equity. And they really first motivated people to begin to conceptualize a brand as strategic rather than tactical. And that changed, fundamentally changed the world of business. What intrigued you back then about branding? Why branding? Well, I was sort of all over the place in uh, the late 80s. I'm professionally, I had written books on market research, business strategy, consumer protection, and uh, advertising. And I had done research in all those areas as well. I was not well positioned, but then... In the late 80s, companies began to realize that their strategies was were not working. I mean, you can only reduce costs so much. You can only, you know, try to gain market share so much. And they thought they needed something else to promote growth. And they sort of, by default, looked at brands and the power of brands. So brand equity became a topic. And I was really ideally suited to go into that area because everything that I had, like advertising, market research, and business strategy all applied to figuring out how to run brands. So uh, I wrote my first book to define brand equity, and, and nobody else had defined it before. And what I did was say that it's more than just brand awareness and brand image. It's also brand loyalty. And that was uh, really pivotal at making branding strategic and making it being perceived as an asset. So my first book had a lot of influence, and then a lot of people came to me and said, okay, uh, you're right, how do I do it? And I wrote the second book called Building Strong Brands, in which I created what I call the brand identity model. I've I've switched it to brand vision model now, but the essence of it is that you don't start out with any pre-specified dimensions of your brand. You you do what's right for you in your context. So you ask, what does your brand stand for? You don't ask, fill in these eight boxes. That really was one of the things that changed the way people manage brands. And I also emphasize that it's more than attributes and benefits. It's brand personality, it's organizational values, and and it's a customer experience and so on. So that's pretty much the story. I'm going to ask you a sort of loaded question that anybody that's working in branding would consider loaded. I don't know that anybody else would, but here goes. How would you define branding now? Well, first of all, brand is just a a label that identifies who made the offering. Brand equity is what that label is worth. 
And as I said, it, in, in my model, it's, it has to do with uh, brand awareness or what I talk about now is energy and visibility, brand image, uh, that's perceptions and feelings, then brand loyalty, which is engagement and connections. So then for brief branding is in, involves with really how do you create brand equity and how do you manage brand equity? So that to me is what branding is today. Your book, Building Strong Brands, which you talked about the brand identity model, you changed to the brand vision model. A lot of people now call it the Ocker model, though after nearly 30 years of teaching, you were beginning to tire of the academic world. Was it because of the success of your books that you started to think about working in the corporate area? No, I... I uh... Uh, I, I was really interested in managerial problems and real business and real programs. And academics are more interested in being theoretically and, and experimentally rigorous. So they tended to ignore, so I would say, uh, one-level problems and deal with three, two or three-level problems that, that aren't that important, but they're more tractable to research. And the first level problems are more important, but they're hard to research. Why? Uh, because they're complicated and because they are so multidimensional, it's hard to isolate one driving force. You really created the conceptual framework for thinking about brand equity. And in Building Strong Brands, you describe the aspects that are needed to create brand equity. They're aspirational, multidimensional, the core identity, the extended identity, and the value proposition. How did you begin to measure those aspects of a brand? Well, I think it really starts to uh, address how do you determine what are your brand pillars or, or brand dimensions? some of which are what I call core, the most important, three, four, five, and the rest, which I call extended, which uh, help you uh, define yourself, but they're not as much drivers of strategy and tactics. So anyway, you, you really have to sit down and, and say what, you know, I, given my strategy going forward, what kind of do I, a brand do I have to have? What, what pillars has to be there for this brand to be successful? They usually come from a knowledge of the environment uh, around you, the marketplace, the competitors, the customers, or they come from internally. They come from a knowledge of what you are doing that's better than other companies and that are really important to customers. That's kind of what the process is. David, I started officially working in branding in the early 90s, uh, 1992. And your books and articles influenced a lot of my thinking about the discipline and also how to position our firm at the time in the brand community. And in most of your books, you include pre-chapter quotes from influential thinkers. And you included a great one from Mahatma Gandhi in one of your books. First, they ignore you. Then they ridicule you. Then they fight you. And then you win. And that is sort of how I feel other people considered 
the concept of branding when I first started back in the early 90s. Um, it sort of was positioned in the sort of more precious design world as uh, selling out or the devil's work. Um, would you agree with that assessment? Well, even today, branding still has to be assertive because there's there's a lot of people that will uh, be quick to say, well, let's measure the ROI of branding expenditures and uh, be uh, reluctant to really accept the role of, of a brand. But, but don't you think we've been branding, you know, since we started drawing on the caves of Lascaux in, in ways in which we wanted to position our stories and our memories and our experiences? I mean, how is that any different? How is creating uh, a brand of religion any different than creating a brand of soft drinks? Well, that's certainly true. And you and I accept that, but not everybody does. What, what happened was there was a rainy Friday morning sometime around 1934 or something like that, a guy who was running brands at Procter & Gamble, a sort of small child to Ivy, which was their big brand. And he said, I want to hire two people to help me run the brand. And they say, why? What do you want them to do? And he wrote a two and a half or three page memo in a company that firmly prevented anybody from writing anything over one page. But he wrote a two and a half page memo, which he outlined the Procter & Gamble brand management system. And basically it was that you examine sales at a very detailed level and you find weaknesses and then you provide programs to correct those weaknesses. And they might be uh, sales promotion, they might be some advertising, they might be cleaning up the distribution channel. Whatever the problem is, you solve it. That brand management system of Procter & Gamble for at least 50 years ruled the roost. That's how people manage brands, the Procter & Gamble way. And a lot of the people managing brands were trained at Procter & Gamble. Yes. But that way of looking at brands was completely tactical. It meant that brands were run by advertising managers, you know, in the middle management. They weren't run by anybody at the top. And it meant that it was highly tactical. You looked at weekly sales at the level of the store, if you could, and then you did changes at that level. So it was, it, it drove the whole system tactically. And so that's where we were in the mid 80s when brand equity was introduced. One of the reasons my way of managing brands was so different is because the Procter & Gamble way was so established. And the people running ads were basically ad agencies because the middle management didn't really have uh, the talent to do it. So they would be partnered with ad agencies and they would tell them, we need a campaign in six months or we need a campaign to deal with this problem. Or, we need a point of purchase display or something. So that's how marketing worked. And pretty much everything was on television or in a magazine or newspaper. That's right. And billboards, pretty simple. And radio. The entry of brand record changed who did marketing or marketing and branding. They changed how it was measured and they changed where it was done in the organization. How did the Procter & Gamble folks first respond to these new models that you were introducing? Were they skeptical? Did they welcome them? What was, what was that change over like? 
I don't know. That's a really good question. It would be fun to look at the history of what happened at P&G, but P&G had really smart people. And I would suspect that they were, uh, they weren't behind the, the curve. When do you think that the sort of notion of advertising campaigns addressing all brand issues changed to branding campaigns? When do you, when do you feel like that really became the way to describe the work that people do in any discipline around branding? Well, I think the the uh, concept of brand as an asset is what drove change, and and it's still, um, you know, not a hundred percent. Well, you know what? If you look at my last two books, the the one before this one was called "Owning Game Changing Subcategories," and it was applying branding to the whole concept of disruptive innovation. And it's really astounding when you look at the disruptive innovation literature. All those important books, all those incredible authors. In their index, they don't have anything under B for branding. <laughs> uh, the the Blue Ocean book, the Christensen books, uh, uh, the Kelly book, all the others, they literally didn't mention branding. And, and if you look at what I pointed out in my book is that it's all about branding. You have to become the exemplar brand. You have to define the whole subcategory and why they should choose that subcategory. You need to scale it really fast these days, and you need to build barriers. And all those cannot be done outside branding. And then I, my last book is on the purpose-driven branding. It's about how do you have effective social programs in your organization? And here again, you, there's literally a hundred books. There's a dozen really, really impactful books by by amazing authors that don't mention branding. Why is that? How is that? I don't know. But but if you think about it, if you're going to run a social program, whether it's internal program like Help a Child Reach Five for Life Boy or an external program like Thrivent Uses uh, Habitat for Humanity. Either way, that social program has got to have a strong brand because it needs to have guidance, it needs to inspire, and it needs to communicate. And you can't do that, none of those things, well without a brand. And then everybody's sort of accepting the fact that an effective social program has got to impact the business positively if it's going to get resources, have a home, and, and be supported over time. And to do that, you you really got to have a way for it to impact the business brand, for Habitat to impact Thrivent, or for Help a Child Reach 5 to impact LifeWide by giving it energy visibility, giving it an image lift, giving it a chance for people to engage in it. So the idea that sort of brand is an asset and it's as part of the strategy and the fight for that is over, it certainly doesn't exist in disruptive innovation or in having a social program, which are two of the critical issues facing almost all organizations. Let's talk a little bit about disruptive innovation before I, we talk about purpose-driven branding, because I think both are really, really significant. In terms of, of brand innovation, what do you think is more important? If a brand is talking about remaining relevant, what are the early warning signs that a process of erosion has begun that will then require innovation. So I want to talk about what happens before innovation um, for large companies or for anybody that's thinking about creating disruption. How do you 
How do you know that the process of erosion has begun that requires innovation? First of all, and I've done a lot of research across a lot of categories, and I've come to the conclusion that the only way to grow, the only way to grow is to create customer must-haves that define a whole new subcategory. Tell our listeners what a subcategory is, because I'm concerned that they might not all know. It's a subcategory. It's where you uh, added a something, a, a something that's so important to the customer that it's a must-have. And is it different from a brand extension? Yeah, it is, because it could be an attribute or a benefit that you've provided that others didn't. Like um, you have maybe something that is very convenient or very attractive or, or something. Or it could be some association like Patagonia created a brand that's all about the environment. And maybe if you're about the environment, you share values, then you have a proclivity to listen to what they say. You have a proclivity to be a little more loyal than you otherwise would be. So that could be a must-have. So it's sort of a new way of looking at what you're buying. The fact is that my brand is better than your brand. Efforts don't create growth. They almost never create growth. And that's still the way a lot of people are growing brands. Most people, yes. And uh, disruptive innovation is hard, so they, they don't go there. I would say that the most empirically valid knowledge bit that we have in all of marketing, indeed, in all of business, the most replicated empirical result is that if you want to predict the success of a new offering in the marketplace, the most important thing is how different it is. Research after research repeatedly says this. If you come out with a meat to a product, your product, your probability of succeeding is very low. If you want to really grow, you need to have something that's different. And that different has to include something that's so positive that people will fail to consider other products. How many ways can a company innovate? Well, that's a really good question. Uh, It turns out there's there's countless number of ways, hundreds of ways. And they they come in two categories usually. And one is from uh, insights from the marketplace. And that can come from trends, market trends, or customer trends, or knowledge of customer annoyances. So it can come from customer research, market research, but it can also come from internal things. Like Steve Jobs famously never did any market research because it was always his instinct about a technology advancement. Usually not something that that he did, but uh, something he knew about. And, and he's, his sense of timing was really good. You've written about the quote that's often attributed to Henry Ford. I've also talked about it quite a bit. It, there's some controversy as to whether or not he actually said it, but I'm going to say it anyway or share it anyway, just because I think it's worthy of talking about conceptually. People have said that he said that if he had asked consumers back at the turn of the 20th century what they were interested in, transportation, they would have said they needed a faster horse. How do you see the value of market research now? And and what are the better ways to try to get insight from consumers when you're asking them questions about what they want or need? Well, I, I think that you you need to do all of the above. You need to be close to your customers. You need to be close to the market. You need to know what your competitors or others are doing. Competitors in your category and outside it as well. 
But at the same time, you have to be on top of the technology, artificial intelligence, and whatever is potentially relevant for your customers. I, I think the problem is not so much identifying opportunities is to knowing what to do with them. And uh, an opportunity will almost always be immature and flawed in, in terms of the way you look at it. And so you've got to not only identify the opportunity, but you have to project how you can deal with that in six months, a year or something after you sort of overcome some of the inherent problems. What research methodologies do you feel are most effective now? Gosh, you're, I, I, I once wrote a book on marketing research, but oh, boy, that was a long time ago. <laughs> um, you know, Procter & Gamble has this philosophy of living with customers, you know, actually literally going and yeah. spending time with customers. So eth- more ethnographic? Yeah, ethnographic. You can do it with cameras. You don't necessarily have to drive to Lubbock, Texas. And so I think that those insights, these qualitative studies have always been a sort of a, a rich way to do that. Quantitative studies are are uh, much more suited to more established situations. Yeah, I think ethnographic or qualitative research is good. I think another source is to marshal the information that you already got in your organization. You have salespeople talking to customers. You have others that have a lot of insight, but it's often extremely difficult to get a hold of these and get them to be in a useful form. David, when you received the American Marketing Association's Marketing Hall of Fame Award, you stated that people need to realize that customers are uninterested in what brands, companies, and products say about themselves. And that means that most conventional marketing is not engaging and worse, is ignored. Do you still feel that way? Well, I I wrote a book on creating signature stories. and, And the whole thrust of that book was the fact that that descriptions and facts don't get attended to and they don't get registered. And even if they do, they precipitate skepticism and counter-arguing. And so there's a really powerful communication tool, and that's the use of stories. Stories to uh, embed your message in or stories to motivate the message that comes later or stories to validate a message that came before. But stories is kind of the key because uh, the main thing is that it, it attracts attention. You, you, you say, let me tell you a story, and most people are going to listen. And second, it, you don't tend to counter-argue when there's a story there. You, you, you just don't tend to be skeptical if you're involved in the story. It's a story. Now, what do you mean by story, and can you give us some examples of how a story might be engaged to help consumers better connect with a product? Yeah, in fact, my daughter is teaching stories at Stanford, and and that's how I talk, I talked to about stories with her for several years. In fact, we kept saying, "What is not a story?" We finally concluded, a story is not facts and descriptions. So, a story is a narrative, kind of a once upon a time anecdote about a person or a product or a company. It is involving it uh, at least a signature story is involving kind of has a wild capability that you got to hear this sort of thing. 
So it kind of jumps out at you. Is it different from advertising or how is it different from advertising? Well, advertising can employ stories and sometimes they do and sometimes they don't. I think the best advertising does represent a story. What are some of the, the better brand stories you've encountered in your work? One of my favorites is the Dove Real Beauty thing and the the stories they tell about some experiments they did, like they have a, in a shopping center, they have two doors, one mark, marks beautiful and the other ordinary or something. They track the people that go through the door that's not marked beautiful and ask them why and so on. Another is Life Boy Help a Child Reach Five, where they they had this hand washing program to help people for, uh, stop dying. Uh, two million kids under four, five die each year because of waterborne illnesses, most of them. And if they wash their hands, that can be reduced. So they have this program. They teach kids how to wash their hands and and they're they're trying to reach a billion people and they've reached half a billion already. And they created a video in three villages where they put this program into place. And it was a featured a mother in each village. These three videos, three minute videos got 44 million views. I mean, it, just imagine what that does for their program, Help a Child Reach Five program, but what it does also for the Lifebuoy business. I mean, just think of trying to, how much money you'd have to spend about talking about how great your soap is in order to get that kind of exposure. And then, you know, what's another story I like is in 1986, there was a, a dying appliance company in China and they took a middle manager to make him CEO and said, you know, you got to turn this thing around. And in his first few weeks, the customer came in with a, a bad appliance and he went to the warehouse and said, I'll get you a new one. And he found that 70% of them or so were defective. And he took all those defective appliances and he got a sledgehammer and smashed them up. Or his employees did. Even today, that sledgehammer that said he is known by everybody that works at that company, which is Hyair. They're now the largest appliance manufacturer in the world. And uh, that story is part of their success. So do you think that people aren't really interested in product attributes anymore and they're more engaged by the stories that sort of, in an ancillary way, highlight what the attributes are? Yeah, I think it's always been true. The, the customers are less interested in products and attributes than the people that are making those marketing and advertising decisions think they are. Yeah, there's no question about it. They're much less interested than you would hope or think or assume. You talk about Lifebuoy and and of the Dove Real Beauty campaign in your brand new book. Uh, the book is titled The Future of Purpose-Driven Branding, Signature Programs That Impact and Inspire Both Business and Society. And in the book, you posit that making great products is no longer enough to provide inspiration to both the people that work in organizations and the people that buy the products that the organization makes, and that brands now must address societal challenges in their marketing and go on to state that sitting on the sidelines in the face of the serious problems, needs, and issues facing society is no longer an option. I agree. I want to know why you feel that way. Well, there's a, uh, a story, I don't know, uh, it's probably not true, but it's um, 
about Sir Christopher Wren, who was an architect back in 1690, built St. Paul's Cathedral. He was walking along and he saw a workman. He said, what are you doing? He said, I'm laying bricks and my bricks are really uh, perfectly laid. And he, he asked the next guy, a workman, what is he doing? He said, I'm building a wall. And look at my wall, how great it is. And then he asked the third one, what are you doing? He said, I'm building a cathedral for the Almighty. You know, people want to build cathedrals. They, they don't want to lay bricks, especially after the COVID. The, the goal to have meaning in your, your professional life as well as your, your private life is really compelling, especially among young people. They won't work or stay at companies that they perceive are just after profits. So you need a higher purpose. This is a purpose-driven economy. And one way to get a higher purpose is just to make insanely great products or we're the best service company. And that's not good enough because that's still, at the end of the day, that's too close to maximizing sales and profits. And so the tact that really is necessary is to be involved in addressing the, these huge, visible, and scary problems that are facing our society. And do that in a way that people feel connected to it that are working in, in the company. And of course, it, it goes beyond the employees, although they're the main source of value for these things. But there's usually a, a customer base in some sectors more than others. But even if it's only 15% of your market that care, 15% of your business is the difference between thriving and struggling. And then there's investors. Suddenly, forty percent of investors are looking for ways to invest that really enable them to say they're supporting social uh, programs. And then there's others that influence the suppliers. There's uh, a whole host of others that also really like to be associated with organizations that they can be proud of. You write about how capitalism has created an unsustainable set of problems, which include global warming, resource depletion, and an increasing gap between the rich and the poor, and declare that business has to decide what role it wants to play. Does it sit on the sidelines waiting for governments to take action? Or does it start addressing these issues? And you go on to suggest that companies must develop what you have called signature social programs to combat these ailments. Can you define what a signature social program is? Sure. Well, first of all, most people that decide they're going to be involved or increase their involvement focus on, on, on giving grants to people. Usually it could be hundreds or thousands of small grants, having a volunteer program for their employees, and maybe setting energy goals. 50% of our energy is going to be clean or all of it's going to be clean in a certain time frame. All these are kind of, they're unbranded and they're kind of uh, aimless. I mean, they don't have a, uh, a focus that will marshal all their assets and skills. I say you need to have a programs that merit branding. That means that they're going to be around for a while and they're, they're meaningful. And those are going to be your signature programs. They're called signature because they represent you. You say, what do you mean by you're, you've got this kind of set of values now that you're going to be concerned with the environment and, and social issues as well as your business. What do you mean by that? Well, this is what I mean about that. Look at our, my signature program. That's me. That's us. It communicates in a broad sense what you're all about, 
but it also communicates this isn't tokenism or greenwashing. We're actually doing something. I mean, we've got uh, half a billion people not wash their hands differently than they did before. In the Dove case, we got hundreds of, literally hundreds of millions of women and girls that have a different perception of themselves. One of my favorite uh, examples of a signature story in your book is the work that Salesforce is doing. Can you share that signature story? Because I think that really focuses or showcases what the best practices of a signature social program can be. Well, they have many signature stories, as should any large company. One of them, for example, at their founding in 1999, they were, were going to, uh, you know, give back. So they made this 1% pledge, you know, 1% of employees' time, 1% of our product, 1% of our profits. We're going to be going to good, worthwhile causes. So they sort of set a floor. They actually probably do three or four times that much, but they set a floor that everybody knows about. And then and then they challenged other organizations to do the same thing. 10,000 businesses are now said that. Well, can you imagine? I mean, just having that within the sales, this huge Salesforce organization makes a huge difference, but multiply that times 10,000. So they've scaled it, but they've done uh, other things. One of their uh, sort of a purpose statements for Salesforce is a, a concept that technology is a force for good. And within their portfolio software, they have a environmental cloud, they have a nonprofit cloud, and a few others that directly help people that are either doing work in the case of a nonprofit cloud or, or they're making progress in the case of the environmental crowd, this software helps them do it. And they subsidize this software and sometimes give it away free. So that's part of their signature programs. It comes back to 1% of their product. But in their case, it's far more than that. Dave, I have been really struggling with something that I, I want to talk to you about. And that is the companies that might be rainbow washing during Pride Month or greenwashing when thinking about sharing with consumers what they might be doing to help the environment, which is really just a matter of of sort of kowtowing to ideas that they think that are going to make them more profitable. And you've written in in one of your books, and I'm not even sure which one, but I wrote it down because I thought it was so profound. Um, it's something that you attribute to Peter Drucker. Profit in a company is like oxygen for a person. If you don't have enough of it, you're out of the game. But if you think your life is about breathing, you're missing something. And <laughs> and and I love that because I, you know, there is this sort of fiduciary responsibility that a corporation has to the shareholder. However, when we have a company, for example, for example, you talk about Chick-fil-A in your book, their shared table program, which provided over 10 million meals to needy people. But, but they also fund anti-LGBT legislation. As a person who is LGBTQ, I have I take umbrage with that. Unilever's mission is to make sustainable living commonplace with high-performing brands that are a force for good and taking action for a more sustainable and equitable world. And they have Dove and they have Lifebuoy, which are really important and, and great examples, but they still market Axe. You refer to it as the Axe problem in your book, which is a brand that's often objectified women. And they also own Fair and Lovely, which is a skin bleaching cream sold in India that's marketed to whiten and lighten skin. 
So it seems that these efforts undermine any, can undermine any real credibility in making meaningful changes. And how do we, how do we rectify this? How do we understand the sort of spectrum of doing good and doing good because we want to do good for the sheer virtue of doing good versus doing good that then results in more profit? Yeah, that's really a tough question. And especially for myself and and many others like it that have sort of baked into the whole model that the program, social program, has to help a business in order to, you know, get this flywheel going that the business will help them and provide a long-term solution. I mean, the Dove uh, Real Beauty program has been going on for, for 19 years or something like that with enormous money spent each year with a, a whole different way of looking at it and, re- and keeping it fresh and keeping it extended and they do research. And, and they couldn't do that if Dove wasn't benefiting economically from that. Yeah. So how do you balance economic value with morality? <laughs> yeah. What I say is that you have to really be sincere and you have to be authentic and you have to be committed. You have to make a long-term statement and, and you have to have passion and you have to be involved in it. You have to be a thought leader. I mean, or you can be a thought leader. So when you see this really passionate, informed, creative methods of attacking the problem over a long t- period of time, you know, five years, 10 years, 15 years, I mean, it's, it's first of all, not true. In the case of, of Dove and Lifebuoy, it's not true that they're doing this only because they want to make money. They are making money, and that's one of the reasons they're doing it, but it's still the fact that they're passionate about the social issues they're addressing. And that comes through. So I think the people that accuse Dove and Lifebuoy of, of greenwashing are are very few. Well, I don't think it's a matter of Dove and Lifeboy, I think I, I agree with you absolutely. It's more about Axe and Fair and Lovely. And how do you reconcile that they own all four of those brands? So Unilever, uh, which I think is the most impressive company in the world at doing social good, and they have several products that are are not by any measure. And one of them has been Axe, in which says that, you know, if you wear Axe, that all these beautiful girls in bikinis will attack you. And of course, they do it in a humorous way, but it's still just a position against Dove. It it really is. But anyway, the Dove Real Beauty Program is not a Unilever program. It's really a Dove program. And they got 400 brands. So what they're doing is, is they're encouraging these brands to do better. And they're encouraging these brands to move toward Dove. And they created something called a sustainable living brands. And to reach that status in Unilever, you have to really be demonstrating you did good. Just a few years ago, there was only 26 out of 400 that did it. Axe was not one of them. Yeah. But Axe has become a sustainable living brand. Yeah. I mean, I'm glad that they're revising their proposition. And I'm also, I also read that Fair and Lovely is renaming, they're renaming themselves. But I don't, I don't think it's a matter of just renaming. I think it's a matter of, no. you know, what is the reason for being? In the case of Axe, they discovered that their old strategy wasn't working all that well. And they're tired of being uncomfortable being in Unilever, all those people looking down their nose at them. 
And for those two reasons, they said reposition is something to be the best you can be instead in, in a very positive kind of thing. And, and as a result, they became a sustainable brand. When Nike started to support Colin Kaepernick, quite a lot of people took to social media outraged that they were supporting him and they were, um, some people were burning their sneakers. They were, there was, there was a couple of people that were running their sneakers over with vehicles to show their outrage. And at the time, Wall Street was very concerned about how this support of Kaepernick would impact the market value of the brand. Several months later, turned out that it had improved the market share. And uh, while it seemed quite risky for Nike to support Colin Kaepernick at the time, it certainly now is something that is shown to be good for their bottom line. Nike was willing to do that without any assurances that it would impact their bottom line in a positive way. They took a great risk in doing that. In the case of Lifebuoy, in the case of Dove, those weren't quite as risky in that they didn't really incur any rancor from the culture at the time. How do you see the risk-taking involved in signature social programs? How, how much do brands need to mitigate that risk, if at all? So you're talking about now programs that venture into controversial areas. Yeah. I mean, yeah. nobody about, you know, real beauty and help a child reach five and safe food is not very controversial. But uh, uh, Unilever has a brand, Ben & Jerry's, that is uh, off the wall controversial. So there are certainly people that will boycott Ben & Jerry's because they don't yeah, like that. That's true. And there's like people that are, are boycotting Nike. But what you have to realize, and, and there's people that don't like Patagonia, but you, when you realize for those companies, the fact that they're, a loyal customer base is sort of constrained by that. It, it can't grow to 90% of the country. But by, by the same token, the ones that it can attract, the 40% or 50% they have access to, they have a, an, a shared values and affinity that make it easier to get and keep those as loyal customers. So that's kind of what's going on. Boy, when I, that Colin Kaepernick, I thought it was a big mistake. And uh, I had a friend that same day, he said, no, this was really a brilliant move. And he was right. Well, I guess it comes back to the notion of, is it a brilliant move? So something that is created as a tactic, or is it something that is born from deep passion about a stance? And that's where I sort of get that sort of, that I don't know, it's a, a that little conflict in me about, of course, we want companies to do well supporting signature programs, but somehow the idealist in me would think it's most important that they're doing good, not that they're doing well. You need both. Yeah. yeah. In, in my opinion, you need both. I think the really strong... Uh, programs are those that end up helping the business. It's just common sense because when you have a program that's helping the business, the business has got a lot of resources yeah. and they got a lot of options. They can include you in your mammoth advertising budget or they cannot include you. And if they include you, 
you just couldn't dream of that otherwise. David, the last thing I want to ask you about is politics. You've been writing a bit about how badly the Democrats position their politics and their ideas. What advice do you have for the Democrats moving forward in terms of how they frame the ideas that they feel are most critical for our future? Well, I'm a big student of Professor Lakoff at Berkeley, who is a, a linguist. And he has been very influential in the Democratic Party, but not influential enough, I think. It's all about positioning the, the discussion. That's so much more important than winning the discussion. If you can get the discussion on, on your terms, you've already won. So can you give me examples of that? How can we better do that? If you talk about tax relief, for example, you have lost the argument. I mean, if you're trying to convince people that we don't need tax relief, good luck. And uh, if you talk about investment in infrastructure, then you're going to win the discussion. Ah, so an investment rather than the relief. Yeah. If you talk about uh, being uh, pro-abortion, you've already lost. Somebody has been successful at getting people to stop being for choice and being for abortion. And that was fatal for the choice movement. So anyway, it's, it's really about defining the discussion. And the way you do that is discipline and repetition over a long time period. A better way to say it is the Republicans are really good at it. I know. And and I don't want to say that because I'm afraid it's repetition and <laughs> I don't want to give them credit for doing that. How did they get so good at doing that? And why are the Democrats so poor at it? They're just disciplined. The Democrats often look at a, at a problem in its complexity. They're not good at labels mm. and sticking with labels. They're good at making the subject more complex which is sort of a realistic managerial way to solve a problem, but it's not a good way to make the problem simple and, and control the conversation. Yeah, well, maybe someone listening will figure out a way to get to you to uh, make a difference in the way that we perceive these big issues that we're facing these days. Dave, my last question is this. It's a funny question. Um, I read that in grad school, you started doing three hours of solid work each day before procrastinating, and you found that that works. And I'm wondering if that is still a tactic for your legendary productivity. Well, not as much as it, it, it uh, was before, but yeah, I, I still believe in that. I have given my three daughters a lot of advice over the years but I think that one has probably been more influential than anything else I've ever <laughs> given them. Because I think a couple of them have picked up on that. Yep, I love it. Three hours of solid work each day, then procrastinate. David, thank you so much for joining me today on Design Matters. Um, your work has influenced me um, almost more than anyone's in the way that I think about branding and in my practice of, of the discipline. Well, good. Thanks again for having me. 
Absolutely. Dave Ocker's latest book is The Future of Purpose-Driven Branding, Signature Programs That Impact and Inspire Both Business and Society. You can find out more about David Ocker and keep up with his writing at davidocker.com. That's D-A-V-I-D-A-A-K-E-R. This is the 18th year we've been podcasting Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Design Matters is produced for the TED Audio Collective by Curtis Fox Productions. The interviews are usually recorded at the Masters in Branding program at the School of Visual Arts in New York City, the first and longest-running branding program in the world. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Emily Wyland. 